The king stood crowned, around in the gate, midnight striking, torches and fires massing the color, casting the metal, furnace of jubilee, through time and town, Logras heraldically flaunted the king's state. Shouldering shapes through the skies rise and run through town and time, Merlin beheld the beasts of Brasily and the fish of Nimue, hierarchic, republican, the glory of Logras, patterns of the Logos in the depth of the sun. Gawain's thistle, Bedivere's rose drew near, flutes infiltrating the light of candles. Through the magical sound of the fire-strewn air, spirit burning to sweetness of body, exposed in the midst of its bloom, the young queen, Guinevere. Lancelot moved to descend. The king's friend kneeled, the king's organic motion, the king's mind's blood, the lion in the blood roaring through the mouth of creation as the lions roar that stand in the Byzantine glory. Guinevere's chalice flew red on an argent field. So, in Lancelot's hand, she came through the glow, into the king's mind who stood to look on his city. The king made for the kingdom, or the kingdom made for the king? Thwart drove his current against the current of Merlin. In beleaguered Sophia, they sang of the dolorous blow. out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, and I have with me one of the foremost fans and scholars of Charles Williams, Dr. Serena Higgins. How are you doing, Serena? Great, thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with me about Charles Williams. Oh, no problem. As we know, we abolish time and space here in the Inklings Variety Hour. <laughs> yes, we do. So Serena Higgins is editor-in-chief of the Sigmund University Press. Her, her PhD dissertation entitled From Thaumaturgy to Dramaturgy, Staging Occult Modernism, examined the role of ceremonial magic in modernist theater especially in the works of W.B. Yeats, Charles Williams, and Aleister Crowley. Dr. Higgins edited an academic essay collection entitled The Inklings and King Arthur, which I highly recommend. Wrote the introduction to a new edition of Charles Williams's Talias and Through Logros, which I also highly recommend, and edited and introduced Williams's early play, The Chapel of the Thorn. She's also the author of the blog, The Oddest Inkling, devoted to a systematic study of Charles Williams's works. As a creative writer, Serena has published two books of poetry, Caduceus and The Significance of Swans. She currently has a volume of short stories available via a monthly subscription from the Signum University Press. Serena also does an excellent podcast that's not related to Charles Williams or anything having to do with the Inklings, except maybe tangentially, called 1619 and 1776. It's a conversation with pastors and Christians about political division and the church. I'll be sure to link that in the show notes. So listeners, I had so much fun talking with Serena about Charles Williams's novel, Descent into Hell, that I wanted to have her back on the show to discuss Williams more generally and then get into more specific questions having to do with the finer points of, of his thought. But first, before sure. we do that, and before we get into kind of his biography, the poem you read at the top, what is it? And what's it about kind of generally? Those are excellent questions. The selections were from The Crowning of Arthur, 
which itself is from Williams's 1938 volume, Taliesin through Logras. Taliesin is King Arthur's poet. Now he was a real historical figure. There was a Welsh bard called Taliesin and some of his poems are extant. And Williams made him a main character in Williams's own version of the Arthurian story. So this poem from which I read is the moment when King Arthur is crowned and it's a gorgeous poem. It goes through the heraldry, the coats of arms on the banners and the shields of each of the knights and it's packed with color and symbolism. And we get Merlin there watching the whole thing. And he's kind of a, a sort of a spiritual guide and guard of King Arthur's kingdom, looking over the whole thing from this perspective that sees the pattern of the whole. And then we had some of the famous knights mentioned, Sir Gawain, Sir Bedivere, and then Guinevere. And in this poem, we have Lancelot leading Guinevere towards the king. And we all know how that story ends up. But Williams kind of complicates it a little bit. He doesn't make the adultery of Lancelot and Guinevere really the central sin and the central downfall of King Arthur's kingdom. Instead, he poses this crucial question. Was the king made for the kingdom or was the kingdom made for the king? In other words, who serves whom or what serves whom? Will Arthur be the servant of his kingdom and thus of God's kingdom and preserve it and realize God's kingdom on earth? Or will he see the kingdom as his own plaything, his own path to power or his own means of pleasure and self-fulfillment? And, and sadly, he answers the latter. Arthur answers wrongly. And that's just one of these spiritually fatal mistakes that so many of the characters make. He mentions the dolorous blow. That's when one of the knights snatches up the sacred spear that's one of the hallows of the crucifixion and stabs someone with it. But Williams makes all of these big mistakes happen concurrently. So when Arthur says that kingdom is going to serve me, it's as if he is stabbing the spear in Christ's side in a way at that moment, just as Lancelot chooses Guinevere over his battle to Arthur and Mordred chooses vengeance and so many of the others choose to serve themselves rather than to serve the greater things. Hmm. That is, so a, that is an adept summary because this poem or this cycle does not lend itself to just kind of beach reading. These are, these are for difficult, sure. difficult poems. He wrote in a difficult style. Lewis and Elliot were both vexed by, by how intricate and difficult Williams's poetry. And if Elliot was. found a poem difficult, that's saying something. Yeah. Yeah really is. But they're yeah, really ahead. just musically beautiful poems, yeah, aren't they? They are. they are. I mean, even, even without understanding the bit that I read, I imagine that your listeners can just appreciate the sounds of it. And in the parts that I skipped, there's just gorgeous imagery of all these yeah. beasts and symbols on the banner. So it's really lovely poetry. And I think it rewards both slightly more casual reading and then deeper rereadings and study. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, and, and, a lot of modernist poetry can be that way. If we want, if we want to, mm -hmm. do we want to call this modernist poetry? I, I, yeah, I, I do. I want to call it that. Obviously, it's not in the same category with, say, Eliot, Pound, Auden, sure. but it's in conversation with yeah. them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my hesitance was was just because I I know Lewis liked 
Taliesin, but he didn't generally like the the new stuff. I remember encountering, it wasn't Williams, but, but I remember encountering Elliot's four quartets in college. And I still don't understand that whole poem very thoroughly, but I've kind of, you know, like, like Reaper Cheap says, the spell of it has been on me all my life, right? It's, uh, it's yeah, I, I return to the four quartets over and over again. And it seems like this is a similar, you know, sort of aesthetic experience where you can really enjoy it, even if you don't totally understand what yes. it means. And honestly, I find these poems easier than the four quartets because there is a narrative there. And yeah. if you've encountered any other Arthurian retelling, then you can get the bones of the story, you know, about yeah. Merlin and Arthur and Lancelot and Guinevere and the right. Holy Grail and so forth. So there's a there's a path into it. Yeah. And it, it does have an unfolding story. You don't have to just know the ins and outs of Elliot's biography or or Williams's right. biography to to get the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's uh, Well, both of those do inform it though, right? Their biographies do right. inform our readings of their poetry yeah. if we do know those. Yeah, that is true. That is true. All right. So speaking of his biography, Williams, a lot of times, you know, he's he's referred to as the inkling that was less educated, you know, a bit of a prodigy, right? Not as well off as Lewis and Tolkien and others and kind of a, a common guy. A lot of times you'll talk about, you'll you'll hear his Cockney accent referred to or whatever else. So what, what was his early life like? Did he grow up poor? Did he write as a child? What was his education? Yes. Yes to both of those. He did grow up rather poor. Unfortunately, his father went blind fairly young and, and lost his job and was recommended to move out of London into the suburbs for a more healthy environment and opened a little shop where he sold artists' supplies, but that unsurprisingly didn't do very well. So Williams was plagued with a sense of not having enough money for his entire life. Even when that wasn't quite as true anymore, he always had this sense of urgency that he needed to make more money to take care of his family. And his education was was fine. It was fairly standard for the day, but was not Eton or Harrow. It was the local school in St. Albans. But he did very well there, such that he got a scholarship to go to university early. It seems like it's similar to what we would now call a dual enrollment. He went for uh. his last year of secondary school to University College London. And just loved that did very well mm. there but then he was his family was only able to afford one more semester after that before he had to drop out so he had about an equivalent of a year and a half of a college education and then had to go to work first in a book shop and then he got a job as a lowly proofreader at oxford university press and worked there for the rest of his life and worked his way up from lowly proofreader to a senior editor who was compiling anthologies and writing introductions and really doing a lot to shape the reading tastes of the British public at the time. Mm -hmm. There were some hardships in his childhood. There were some illnesses. As a matter of fact, he had an illness as a very young child, which was responsible for some internal injuries that then eventually caused his untimely death in, mm -hmm. in 1945. So it does seem like it was a little bit of a, of a struggle. But he and his father were very close and they would go for walks, not to look at the landscape because his father lost his sight and Charles himself is very nearsighted, but to talk. So they were peripatetic talkers, as were lots of the Inklings. But his dad would do this fascinating thing. They would get into some literary or theological or philosophical debate and halfway through his father would make them switch sides so that Charles <laughs> had to experience the other side of the argument. And I think this explains a lot of the way his 
mind worked for the rest of his life. Yeah, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. That's it's really tempting to adopt that in my own conversations with my children. Yeah, that's great. Certainly with my students, which already I, I do. But yeah, were were there any were there any other like just important landmark things that happened in his childhood that we should pay attention to? Yes, you asked whether he wrote from an early age, and he did, much like C.S. Lewis's Boxen, his stories for children. Charles and his sister and one close friend made up an imaginary world together, and some scraps and fragments of that are still extant. And they're absolutely shocking to have come from the mind of a young child because they're highly political. They are actually quite boring and dull and include lists of the peerage of this imaginary realm and minutes of uh. congressional meetings and family trees and they're really dry, but really sophisticated. He was making this imaginary world in which hierarchy and order and chivalry and ceremony were very important. The realm was called Sylvania and it's the adventures <laughs> of one Prince Rudolph and some other, some other members of the realm, but it contains in it a, an imaginary little ritual that he invented. I forget what the order is, but someone is knighted to an order of such and such, and there's some bits of ritual that he wrote in it. So even as a little kid, somewhere between seven and 10 years old, he was already interested in royalty and ceremony. What was his faith like growing up? Was was this part of the draw to to for him with church, or, or did he really not care much about it until later in life? He... He always went to church. He was always a committed Anglican or, or high Anglo-Catholic Christian. I have not detected any shift or change anywhere that shows what we would think of as some kind of conversion. Certainly that tradition doesn't have the like moment of coming to Christ, the moment that you were born right. again or something like that. So it seems like he was always committed to that tradition, also always full of doubts and questions but I, I don't see any one great life change as far as as far as his beliefs. So yeah. he always stayed within that tradition. He had you know, two decades of exploration of the occult that we'll get into later. Mm -hmm. But right, I don't see that he ever really stepped outside of that faith tradition. He gets a little older, and and World War One comes along, like. Mm -hmm. Like all the inklings, this this seems to have been really important to him. What what was kind of his experience of World War One or or lack thereof? He did not fight. He was medically unfit, both because of the nearsightedness and because he had some kind of a neurological disorder that he shook very badly, even from a young age. You can see this in his handwriting sometimes that he, he always had a sort of nervous disposition. He could never sit still. He was always moving around and twitching and and shaking. So anyway, he he was unable to serve but his two best friends went off to the war we have some letters from them and they were both killed and this mm. impacted him deeply and it was influential on his development of the doctrine of coherence and the way of exchange because he felt that not only had these men died for their country in a generic sense but that they had almost literally substituted themselves for him so they went to war and died. He stayed home and was safe. So their life was exchanged for his. And he wrote a poem in which he talks about the, the boys 
is at the front in the trenches drinking from a tin cup that they pass hand to hand and that somehow that's happening right here and now like in our own breakfast room so again there's that abolishing of time and space everything is happening in the same place at the same time so maybe he suffered what we would now call some kind of survivor's guilt and then worked that into his theological system because that's what the man did. He worked everything into his yeah. theological system. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe it's worth just kind of pivoting from that part of his biography to talk a little bit about coherence and exchange. What are those things? Mm -hmm. Coherence, to put it quite more simply than perhaps one ought, is the idea that we are all members of one another. We are all parts of one another. The great model for this is the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, the perichoresis, the idea that the three persons of the Trinity are in an eternal dance together, an eternal dance of identity and communion and love. I think this is a fairly profound Christian doctrine that at the heart of it, at, at our you know, at the core of our monotheistic faith is actually community and mutual love. So Williams extrapolated from that and said that we are all members of one another in a much more intimate and real way than we all usually like to think. Sure, we talk about the butterfly effect and we talk about how whatever I do affects other people, but he pushed that to an extreme and based on it, his doctrine of substitution or exchange. This is the idea that if you are suffering any physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual burden, I can take it from you and carry it instead of you, just like if you'd been carrying a heavy box or bag and got tired, I could, you know, literally take that out of your arms. Well, not over Zoom, although Williams might say I could, but mm -hmm. I could carry it for you. So he he gives examples of this throughout his writing. Uh, both fictional and non-fictional. And eventually he founded a group, the Order of the Coherence or the Companions of the Coherence. And he would assign people to carry others' spiritual or emotional burdens. So he took this very, very seriously and mm -hmm. thought that this is the way that the universe was built. And his idea of what it is to live in right harmony with God is essentially whether to submit to that nature of the universe or to resist that that is the nature of the universe. Hmm. Yeah. I don't yeah. know, maybe a couple of examples might be helpful. Well, going back to the poem, can this idea be read into, you know, the, the fact that you're talking about how a number of different bad decisions are made by leading characters in the Arthurian mythos, that, that they seem to all be affected by the decision of Arthur to you know, be to, to make his kingdom for himself instead of his, himself for his kingdom, that this leads to, or maybe leads to is too strong, maybe coincides is better. I don't know. Uh, but this, this is, is part and parcel of these other negative things that happen. Right. Is that? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and listen to the next stanza. This is what happened when Arthur answered the question wrongly. Doom and shocks sprinkled the burning gloom, molten metals and kindling colors pouring into the pyre. At the zenith, lion and dragon rose, clawed, twisted, screamed. Taliesin beheld a god lie in his tomb. So essentially, mm. what that poem claims there is that 
Arthur's decision to choose selfishness is the moment of Christ's crucifixion. Mm-hmm. That it is another killing of Christ, right? That yeah. happens at that exact moment. And again, when Arthur sleeps with his half-sister, and again, when Lancelot and Guinevere are unfaithful, you know, every one of those moments is essentially the crucifixion happening in our own lives. But this also means that resurrections happen in our own lives. That's not exactly the same thing as the substitution exchange, right? But it is this kind of, this coherent identity of us with Christ and us with each other. Yeah. 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 And then, and then I guess, you know, for a positive example, we could do, well, earlier last season, season two, we discussed a descent into hell, right? Where you have the sort of mm-hmm. poet figure, Charles Williams figure taking on Polly Ann Struthers' fear of her doppelganger for her. And then I guess, of course, C.S. Lewis had a mystical experience involving his wife's suffering, right? Where his, his leg hurt in the same place that hers used to. Yeah, he actually, she had osteoporosis. No, sorry. She had cancer that was eating away the calcium in her bones and he got osteoporosis, which meant he was losing calcium and her bones mysteriously regrew and the doctors couldn't explain that. And he wrote in a letter, one wants to suspect a Charles Williams type substitution. Hmm. You're exactly right. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's, yeah, such a, such a fascinating, profound idea, perhaps occasionally taken too far. I don't know, but we could probably sp- spend the whole podcast talking about it. Let's, let's talk, let's talk about Williams in love. Who did he fall in love with and, um, and, and who did he marry? And yeah, how, how did he sort of navigate that relationship and those relationships? And then, and then how did he integrate them into his theological system? Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a good question too. So in 1908, I believe, he was at some kind of a Sunday school Christmas party sort of thing. And he met Florence Conway and he rushed home and wrote her a cycle of sonnets. Of course he did. Rushed up to her again and put this book in her hands and said, here, I wrote this for you and kind of rushed away again. And she read them. And on first reading, she said, good heavens, is this young man going to join a monastery? <laughs> because their theme is the renunciation of love. <laughs> and then she reread them and she said, I think these are about me. Well, she must have been a very insightful reader because, wow, that's a lot to get from the Silver Stair. Poetry. <laughs> they became engaged and were engaged for nine years. Well, I think he wrestled with whether or not he was called to a life of celibacy. Hmm. That seems to be one of the reasons their engagement went so long, as well as practical considerations of trying to be financially stable and and that sort of thing. But they eventually married in 1917, an incredibly important year for him in multiple ways, because that's the year he also joined the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross that we'll come back to. They had one son in 1922, whom they named Michael, which was a little confusing because Williams developed a nickname for his wife, which was Michael or Michal, (laughs) the name of King David's wife. And the reason is because Charles used to recite poetry very loudly in public places (laughs) and Florence would get embarrassed and shush him. And so she would be like, he would say, you would have told King David to stop dancing naked in public before the Lord. So. He nicknamed her Mikal, and the name stuck. She published a book under the name, and it's on her grave. 
Wow. <laughs> so they were they were married and they remained married all of his life. They were separated for the last six years because of the bombings in London. He was evacuated along with the Oxford University Press to Oxford and she stayed in London in their flat. But in between those two dates, in between 1917 and 1939, he did fall in love with someone else, a much younger woman named Phyllis Jones, who was a librarian at the press. And they had this incredibly intense and passionate emotional affair that apparently was never consummated, but was highly sexual in nature. He had a massive outpouring of creativity towards her, writing her poems and plays and modeling characters and novels after her. It seems that his intensity overwhelmed her pretty quickly. And she then turned to another one of their colleagues and had a regular old fashioned affair with Jerry Hopkins, but Williams continued this kind of love slash muse like relationship in his mind with Phyllis for the rest of his life and, and mentions it even in very late letters. At some stage, his office mate, Fred Page, told Florence, told Charles's wife about this emotional entanglement. It seems that she considered divorce, but that did not end up happening and, and they did stay together. He also had many, many other young, mostly female and a few male disciples who were incredibly devoted to him and with whom he practiced some strange rituals. And he did develop multiple layers of romantic theology to sort of explain and deal with his own emotional and sexual experiences. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to just ask as a follow-up question, did he have a difficult time acknowledging that you know, this affair, or if there were others, these affairs were wrong. Did he, did he like kind of take the Christian, like, oh, I need to repent of this view of, of this stuff? Or does he find a way to, I recall even in Descent of the Dove, him sort of speaking glowingly of the practice in monastic circles of living chastely with, you know, a, a person of the opposite sex. And, and it's hard not to read his biography into that a bit. Is yeah, that, the is Virgin's that... Subintroduct Day, mm -hmm. right? The practice of a monk and a young nun sleeping naked in a bed together with a sword between them. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, he did not think that this passion was something to be repented of. As a matter of fact, he thought it was very Dantean, very Beatrician. He thought that Phyllis was a revelation of God to him. And the way he wrote it into his theology was he called her the second image or the lady in the window, because in Dante's experience, Dante sees Beatrice, you know, she's the only woman, she's his image forever. But another time there's a woman who smiles from a window and is like a lesser image uh -huh. of love to Dante. Yeah, it's I mean, funny can, because that that image, of, we both sound yeah, yeah, it's sort of like, oh, I don't... yeah, it's, it's funny, because you, you also have that woman in a in a window right in and descent into hell right right that, that the mm -hmm. ghost sees that's but, right yeah but yeah he says one must affirm this second image in other words the second person one falls in love with but must free oneself of concupiscence in relation to it so like desexualize that love mm -hmm. um i do not see him making any attempt to do that with phyllis but then again we only know so much of someone's heart as they've committed to paper right there right. could be anything else going on that we well, don't know about. But she was definitely an image of God to him. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, if, if he views Dante as kind of one of the highest examples of a Christian poet, right, which, you know, kind of rightly, right? But uh, yeah, certain certain aspects of his life, he's less shy about imitating, such as the fact that Dante spent his life in love with someone who had only met a few times who wasn't his wife. Who and, also died young of the plague. Who died. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and that helps, right? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And what, how did Gemma Donati feel about all of that? Right about Beatrice, right? Right, yeah. There's a book in that. There but is. was he how how open was he about this with his friends? I mean, it seems to me like Lewis would not have likely viewed him as a sort of living saint if he'd been right. kind of open about all this, the way that Dante was open about how well, much he loved Beatrice. Right. Well, in the earlier stages, in the mid-20s and early 30s, Williams was quite open about it with his co-workers. They all knew. Everyone at work knew about Charles's infatuation with Phyllis, and he wrote a cycle of plays that he and his co-workers performed in which Phyllis is the Delphin Oracle and the central pillar and the grail maiden, and, you know, it, he, he dramatizes and embodies this affair. But it, it had certainly died down by 39 when he joined the Inklings. Phyllis okay. had gone off and married and divorced twice. And she actually named her first child after Williams's pet name for her, Celia. Oh, wow. But she had gone abroad and come back several times. So it wasn't it wasn't at the same level of intensity and there was nothing really public right. about their relationship. I think it was all in Williams's imagination then. So certainly C.S. Lewis would not have approved. And Tolkien absolutely would not have approved and I think maybe intuited a bit more than than Jack Lewis did. But by that time, uh, yeah, that was pretty much in the past. Okay. Yeah, speaking of Tolkien, a lot is often made of, of kind of the opposition between Tolkien and Williams, especially, you know, as regards to the space trilogy and, and whose styles Lewis is sort of gearing that towards slash who he's, he's modeling it after. How overblown is that? Were Tolkien and Williams actually really good friends who had a few disagreements? Did they kind of have trouble being in the same room? What, what was their relationship like? If you, if you, if you can, if you know, if there's any way to know. (laughs) I think that's fairly overblown. I think they were excellent friends at the time. I don't see any evidence of tension between them at the time. I think it's later when Tolkien is looking back and writing his letters when he says, so I had no sympathy with his verse and, you know, I didn't understand Mm -hmm. Charles Williams and he didn't understand me. But at the time we see in Tolkien's letters, how the two of them went out to dinner together, not only with Lewis, but just the two of them and had wonderful conversations. And Tolkien wrote this delightful long poem about Charles Williams, in which he mocks him and makes fun of him, but that's Mm -hmm. what all the Inklings did to each other. He makes fun of his gynecomorphical anatomy and gynecomorphical geography, I think is the phrase, which we'll have to talk about. Right. But it's, it's actually a delightful, loving poem that just sounds like it's between friends. So I think a lot of that tension grew up later in Tolkien's memory, maybe. I don't know if he found out anything else about Williams's life or not, or if it's just kind of grumpy old Tolkien thinking back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's prone to that. Well, let's go ahead and, and talk about the gynecomorphical geography as as one instance <laughs> of, of the weirdness of, of Williams. What does that refer to? So in the collection of poetry from which we read at the top, Talius and Thrilogras, there was a frontispiece 
included in the 1938 publication. It was drawn by his Oxford University Press colleague, Linton Lamb, and it shows a map of Europe overlaid with the body of a nude woman. And throughout the poetry, Williams uses the two sets of symbolism, the anatomical and the geographical, to refer to each other or to refer to several other sets of symbols that he's also layered together. So each area of Europe, he calls them provinces or themes, we would now think of them as countries, each of those matches up with a part of the body and also with a virtue or quality that goes with them and also with a sign of the zodiac and also with one of the Sephiroth on the Kabbalistic tree of life <laughs> and with the tarot cards. So he's taken all these different systems of symbolism and he's layered them. Well, he didn't do this layering. The occult orders he was in did the layering, but he took it a step further. So he takes the notion of the body of Christ very, very literally. So as just one example, the woman's hands are in Italy. And so that is because there in the Vatican, the Pope performs his heartbreaking manual act, which is the serving mm -hmm. of the elements of the Eucharist. So you have this idea of that the, the country is symbolized by its most important spiritual action, which is then imaged forth by the lady's hands mm -hmm. and so forth. Mm -hmm. England is the head, and that's because he thinks that Britain's peculiar sin is a fallacy of rational virtue, which is hmm. an intellectual sin. So right. That's, so, so that's what he's referencing when he's like in, in the vision of empire and Talius and through Logos, where he says yep. the milk rises in the breasts of Gaul, yep. trigonometrical milk of doctrine, man sucks at his joints hard and sucking logic, learning law, drawing on the breasts of intelligo and credo, intellect and belief, right? Right. Um, Right. And that's because the great universities of the Middle Ages were founded right. in France. Otherwise, I don't know how you would drink trigonometrical milk. That sounds a little bit, you know, like it has sharp edges. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, they were all out of it at Target. The uh, hard to find. <laughs> you can only get it in medieval France. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but obviously, um, this is like a super problematic thing. Right. Right. I mean, it's it's misogynistic in the way he kind of chops up this woman's body and refers to her mm -hmm. by different body parts. It has some troubling implications for its portrayal of Islam as like the waste of the empire because uh -huh. they reject incarnation. It has an interesting approach to sexuality. The, the buttocks are Caucasia, which is supposed to be like natural unfettered sexuality. That's, that's not, not tied by either sinful pleasures or by like moral structures i guess mm -hmm. but it does lead to some yeah some pretty funny lines like in there's one when there's a slave girl in the poem who has been put in the stocks for fighting with another slave obviously a hundred problematic things right there in that mm -hmm. summary and taliesin comes to set her free and says make lady the roman motion by which he means lift up your hands and like grab something and stand up and then he says, does the Caucasian theme ache? In other words, is your bum sore from sitting so long? <laughs> <laughs> so without having that sort of key to the symbolism, it's it's hard to understand the poetry. Yeah, yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Although I'd, I don't I don't know that the actual Taliesin is a lot easier for me to understand <laughs> the, the, the Welsh 
what what's come down to us anyway attributed to the welsh poet yeah so you mentioned you mentioned things like tarot cards and and i feel like that's as good a segue as any to talk about magic and and williams my when i when i started reading williams work in undergrad and found out that he'd been involved in magic i came away with the idea that williams somehow repented like prospero kind of does at the end of his life of magic upon getting saved but doesn't seem to be exactly what happened so so tell me about williams and and magic and and his faith okay so in 1917 as i said he joined the fellowship of the rosy cross this was an occult secret society led by arthur edward Waite, who had himself been a high-ranking member and leader in the order of the golden dawn the most famous magical society of the late 19th early 20th century so he was in that along with william Butler Yeats and Alistair Crowley and many another uh, notable or infamous character. But A.E. Waite broke off from the Order of the Golden Dawn and started his own group because he wanted it to be more Christian and mystical and less hermetic and magical. So he purged from the rituals, for instance, all of the ancient Egyptian references to the Egyptian mysteries and so forth. And he packed it full of Christian symbolism. He kept the Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical references. And matter of fact, he emphasized those even more. He took out the references to the tarot cards, interestingly, but a lot of their symbolic resonance remains. And A.E. Waite himself worked with the artist Pamela Coleman-Smith to design the most influential pack of tarot cards ever. The so-called Rider Waite or Rider Waite-Smith. tarot cards yeah yeah and i found a footnote once that said that yates may have been a consultant on those designs okay as well so if you if you talk to anybody today who is at all interested in tarot they'll know the writer wait smith Hmm. pack the pack that charles williams describes in the greater trumps is different from weights but obviously highly influenced by it okay so anyway so williams was in this order for 10 years He memorized all of the rituals. He mastered the entire system. He climbed up the system of grades, which is modeled on the system that the Freemasonic, that Freemasonry uses. He became master of the temple three different times, leading the rituals and initiating other neophytes himself. And then he left after 10 years. And until the early 2000s, scholars said that he left because he became disillusioned. He realized it wasn't compatible with Christianity. I do not think that is true. I think he left because he learned it all to explore other things. Because at the same time, and for another 10 years subsequently, he was in another occult group, less formal, not not as official, just meeting at the vicarage of an Anglican priest who had been a high-ranking Golden Dawn member. And apparently they met every fortnight for 20 years and read golden dawn training papers which are called flying rolls most excitingly and talked about tarot talked about kabbalah uh, and also talked about something closely resembling tantric sex magic which may be where williams got some of those ideas there is no evidence that he really gave up on that group it's just that he was evacuated to oxford and then he died so i don't think that he ever decided that the occult was incompatible with Christianity. However, internal evidence from his 
writings, especially I've studied his plays, suggests that he thought it wasn't the whole story, that it was inadequate, and that the occult focused too much on the self as the center of spiritual reality. And so mm. in his later plays, he does push more towards the orthodox, you know, that the Christ figure, or maybe even Jesus himself, <laughs> is the center of all things, spiritually speaking, and that mm. submission and humility are more important than getting in touch with one's inner God, which was the purpose of, of modern occultism. Hmm. Hmm. So there's a, there's a little overview. What do you, what do you think of that? Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah. And it, um, it seems to me to, to track with, you know, with what I've read of Williams elsewhere, because of course I think we tend to both with atheism and with, you know, kind of, pagan stuff or magic stuff or whatever, rather than viewing them as, okay, you know, they have a bit of, you know, they have a bit of truth in them. Otherwise people wouldn't believe them, but ultimately they're flawed in this way or that way. We tend very often to want something that's dualistic, right? Where we want an opposite to Christianity. We want an opposite to the Christian God. We do this, I guess, with Satanism as well, which is a little more understandable, I guess. But, but we, you know, we, we tend to view these other systems as incompatible like the truths found in these other systems is incompatible with the, with the truths of Christianity rather than as being things that have some truth in them, but those that needs to be subordinated to the creed, right? It needs to be subordinated to Christian orthodoxy and, and the bits that don't align need to be thrown out or repented of or whatever else. But uh, I think part of, you know, partly, um, reading Williams and then, and, and to a lesser extent, reading, reading Lewis sort of, you know, sort of does illumine that to, to a degree, even, you know, even as, I mean, I think Williams is very clear or maybe I'm reading this into him, but it seems to be that the objects or other magical things sort of used in his, in his works seem to be used. The correct use is, is, contemplative rather than rather than being used like Sauron's ring right to gain power right right and you could you could see this in in other things that other inklings have have written as well right when there are objects that are you know you you can use them to try to arrogate power to yourself or you can stand in awe of them as icons of God who is transcendent and who ultimately is beyond them, right? This also is thou, neither is this thou, right? As, as the yeah. the Archbishop says in War in Heaven. But um, but but yeah, yeah I think you're right. And one of your listeners asked something about this. Asked what changed or shifted in Charles Williams' life between writing Shadows of Ecstasy and All Hallows Eve that made them so different. And just to to encapsulate that difference, those who haven't read them, Shadows of Ecstasy has this magical guru figure who seems to be the hero, even though he's clearly not a good guy. And then in All Hallows' Eve, there's a server who is the straight up bad guy and, you know, absolutely condemned for practicing his sorcery. I think a simple way to understand the shift would be that Williams embraced the mystical way and rejected the magical way in the end. The mystical Mm -hmm. way is submission to God and to love of others. And the magical way is active power in operation for oneself. So I think that would be the shift. 
I mm. still see his version of Christian mysticism as being magical because it's kind of mechanistic. It mm -hmm. involves these, these compacts and these contracts. And if yeah. you do this right thing, then this sort of miraculous thing will happen. But I think in his mind, it was a shift from the wielding of magical power to a submission to the mystical way. Yeah, yeah, that's a really great point. Well, there is so much we could talk about. We were running out of time and then there's so much more I wanted to talk about, such as his influence on other other poets. And I'd, I'd love to have you back on sometime to, to talk about some of those things if you're willing to. I would like to end just kind of on, because this is the Inklings Variety Hour and because the Inklings, we're, we're first and foremost a creative group. We are, you know, on this podcast more and more kind of asking different authors about the things that they've been making, the things that they've been creating. And you are currently working on a book of short stories. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Oh, thanks. <laughs> These are short stories that I first wrote, oh, decade ago in a creative writing group that was my own kind of inklings group it was lovely it was called ekphrasis fellowship oh, that's of christians cool. in the arts yeah. oh it was a wonderful and we kind of went through phases together like we sort of all wrote poetry at the same time all wrote short stories wrote plays wrote novels it's really cool those things are contagious so watch out hmm. <laughs> but these stories are very odd they're science fiction fantasy a little bit of myth a little bit of i don't know what genre and my press, the Signal University Press, decided to put these out and we're kind of using them as our, our guinea pig, our first work we're, we're putting through our serial release method at the press, which is kind of like Charles Dickens meets the internet that we're putting That's out monthly super installments. Cool. I, I'm really excited about it. It gives us ways that we can publish works that wouldn't otherwise see the light of day because we can publish individual stories by writers, individual academic articles, you know, somebody mm. doesn't need to have a whole collection or a whole monograph to publish with us. Mm. But so, yeah, th this is undergoing serial release right now. People can sign up at $2 a month to get one story a month, or they can become a patron. And for a much larger price, they can actually be one of my supporters and meet with me monthly to talk about the writing process and give input. And that is such a rewarding community. My readers have amazing ideas. But they're kind of funny stories. They're kind of gritty, some bioethical questions set in a near future kind of place with genetic engineering and computer chips implanted in the head. And But one of them is called Incoherence and is deeply influenced by Williams. And it's sort of looking at the opposite mm. of what happens when someone chooses to reject the coherent nature of the universe. Hmm. Hmm. And then That's super cool. Some of them are retellings of old myths. So... There we go. That's my piece of creative writing right now. <laughs> that is great. That is great. I, I definitely want to check that out. Very cool. Oh. So I, I dabble in creative stuff kind of constantly, but I often find myself just kind of in terms of what I do with my writing time, like those kind of intensive hours that you only get so many of in your, in your life kind of pulled in different directions, right? Because I'm technically a scholar and how, how do you harmonize and balance creative demands with, uh, with, with, scholarly demands. I mean, it's all just playing with the beautiful material that is words, right? It's all just yeah. stirring around the words and then 
helping them to march along the page in these nice, neat sentences. It's all listening to the words, writing by ear, I think, because good syntax never goes awry in any genre, mm -hmm. <laughs> from modernist mm -hmm. poetry to literary criticism to fiction. So I don't see them as being mutually exclusive. As far as the time demands, that's really hard. I do just have to budget in a few yeah. hours every week on the calendar, like an appointment to work right. on the creative stuff. But having a community of accountability, that's what does it for me. If I know yeah. that I'm meeting with someone to talk about my writing, I'll work on it. If I'm not, yeah. I won't. So yeah. I think writing a community is the way to go. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, Serena Higgins, thank you so much for joining us to talk about Charles Williams. It was thank you. It was all too brief, and I would love to do a part two sometime. But thank you so much for your time, and you've been so generous to us already here at the England's Friday Hour. Listeners, if you have more questions for Serena, please do write in, and you know we're Inklings Friday Hour at gmail.com. And thank you for tuning in, Serena. Thank you so much again. And uh, thank you uh, for a yeah. very pleasant hour of discussing this complex writer and his lovely works. All right. See you all next time. All blessed encounter full of joy, unscheduled on the decent fan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan.